0: Oh man. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ross. Welcome to the final week of our unique sermon series, a series where we have been examining some of the unique claims of the Christian faith and the ways in which those claims shape and make a unique sort of people, a Jesus sort of people. The kind of people that the world desperately needs to be bearers of the good news of the gospel. Today we wanna look at one particular aspect. We wanna look at our unique view of a believer's eternal destiny especially at the truly distinct and incredible claim of bodily resurrection. Now, now we won't have time today, unfortunately, to get into the topics of heaven or hell, although we have done that at length on other occasions. I, I'd encourage you to go on the website and to search those topics if you're looking for more information on those. But rather, we wanna focus on the distinctly or uniquely Christian view of a life eternal that comes after a physical death and that really ought to change the way that we live in the here and now. It ought to make us a different or a unique sort of people if we believe these things rightly. You see, right at the center of Christian belief lies the belief in bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, Christianity isn't alone in believing in a life after death. Many, in fact, most people believe in some sort of existence after death. Some um, believe in various forms of reincarnation where life is a never-ending sort of cycle of learning. Now that sounds enlightened but can actually be particularly cruel if you play it through because you never actually get the repeat information to learn from. And so it's like continually having to take a new test. And the follow-on of that worldview purely followed if you just adhere to it its logic says that anyone who suffers in this world deserves to suffer because of something that happened in a previous life. And so to alleviate their suffering actually is to remove their ability to learn. Some people believe just in a ghostly roaming or haunting of this world. As we get towards Halloween, we see that the world is obsessed with kind of life hereafter and zombies and ghosts and these kind of things. How do they exist? Do we exist on a spiritual plane where we're left to roam this earth and, and perhaps intervene or interfere in the lives of those who are living here in physical form? Many, most in fact, believe in a form of Gnosticism, a kind of escape to a purely spiritual plane, that this life is physical, it's contained in the matter that our bodies have, and that one day when we die, we go to some sort of better place, one that we don't really describe or understand, but we're free as spirits then to live um, with joy forevermore. I hear these things said all the time. You see, Christians are distinct. Christians believe that everyone dies. Now I must actually footnote that, almost everyone. Enoch was a bit of an outlier, and scripture does warn that some saints will still be alive at Christ's return and they'll be caught up into the air um, with the the returning believers from before. But most everyone dies, and most people die kind of moderately surprised at life's brevity, and Christians believe everyone, everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous, believers and unbelievers, they will be resurrected to a new eternal life. And for the saints, this is a tremendously comforting doctrine because our resurrection to a new eternal life will mean that forevermore, we will be in the presence of our King and of our Lord, Jesus Christ. It comforts my heart when I think of this doctrine. My grandfather, on my dad's side, died when I was 11 years old. It was 1990. He got a terminal cancer diagnosis and, and slowly kind of progressed towards a point of what we could see was no return throughout the year. And I was a passionate young cricket player. Um, I know that feels hard for you to understand. It's an actual sport, it's a, well, it's a sport of sorts. It's a pastime like baseball. Um, and, and I was very passionate about it. And um, I was playing at a, a decent level for a kid my age. And my grandfather asked if he could come and watch one last game. And so he came to attend a rather significant game in my very young career at that time at St. David's College in, in Johannesburg. And uh, with the assistance of a hospice nurse, I believe, and my parents, they brought him and they put him under a grand old oak tree on a stretcher on the side of the field. And he was very, very ill at the time, but he wanted to feel the Johannesburg sun um, one more time and he wanted to watch this game of beloved cricket, his beloved game of cricket that his grandson was playing. And after he watched me bat, I batted all right that day, um, I came off to the side of the field and my parents summoned me across because my grandfather wanted to speak to me. And he was very weak at the time, I can remember it clearly even today. And he called me across and with all the sparkle in his eyes that he could muster, (laughs) I can can almost see him. (laughs) He said, my boy, I will see you soon. I knew I would never see him again. It wasn't long after that that he passed on from this world and went to be with his Lord and Savior where he is now. But I believed him when he said, I will see you soon. Even though I knew I would never see him in physical form again. It was tremendous comfort to me. Since that day, as part of my calling as a pastor, I've spent a lot of time with those who are dying. I've also spent some time with those who have died. And when they are believers in Jesus Christ, I still have that same hope that my grandfather gave me on that day. I will see them again soon. What do we root that hope in? Is that a vague fancy, something we just say to people to make them feel better? Is it a foolish myth? No, we base it in the central Christian claim of the resurrection because right at the center, friends of Christian belief, is belief in bodily resurrection from the dead. Paul explains this in a wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 15, he explains this as centrally important when he says, now I want to make clear for you Brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you take your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here it is, that's all just intro. Here's the, the central claim of Christianity. I passed on to you as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. You see, Jesus really died. It was really for our sins and then he really rose again. It wasn't metaphorical and here's the amazing thing about the gospel accounts of it, it wasn't even purely spiritual, it was in an embodied form that he maintains to this day. Jesus rose bodily in a new body. He ate with people, he spoke with them, he walked with them, he allowed them to touch him and then he ascended into heaven where he is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? He's interceding and advocating for us in his resurrected body and waiting, waiting, waiting with great joy and anticipation for the wonderful day when we will be with Him in that same resurrected form. Now now that's tremendously encouraging, but how does that help us to form our own thoughts on life after death? Well, Paul says that we will all be like Christ in His resurrection. Look at verse 20, he says, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. What is He? He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now that's not some kind of um, statement on the length of the sermon. That is a euphemism that was commonly used for death, right? Those who have passed on, they, they have shuffled off this mortal coil. Jesus is the first fruits of them. For since death came through a man, which is Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, which is Christ. Just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, all will be made Alive. And so Paul's prolonged point in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, is that the resurrection of Jesus is prototypical for the resurrection of the saints. He's the, the first fruits. He went first and we will be like him. Just as Jesus died and was raised to new eternal life, so we too, though we taste death in this life, to be sure, will be raised to new eternal life with him. Now what was happening in Corinth when Paul wrote this chapter and the rest of this epistle to them was that believers were denying that there was going to be a literal resurrection for them to experience, right? They thought, no, no, that, that that can't be right. And as a result, they were living as if this life really was the most real life that there is. And friends, we do the same today. Paul could write to the church in Corinth but title it to the church in America, right? We live as if this life is the good life, this life is the real life. And Paul is trying to say to them, no, no, there's a reality of a resurrection and that one is eternal, live for that one and then this one will have its proper place. Paul's rebuking them and saying, it makes a lot of sense to live this short, temporary life with a very real, very long, very happy, eternal life to come with Christ as our main priority and focus. This is what he says in verse 19, look at it. He says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more, than anyone. If Christians don't have a solid view of an eternal resurrection, then this is a very dumb religion, that's what Paul says. It's pitiable. Why would you adhere to any of it, right? If you don't have your hearts and minds set on the trajectory and on all of the truth of an eternal reality. If the parameters of this life set the priorities of our lives experience, then it makes little to no sense to try and follow Christ faithfully. And may actually explain, listen, why so many of us struggle so significantly in our attempts to follow Him because we're obsessed with this life as if this life was the real life and as if the resurrection life was some abstract myth or external concept that we can't really invest in, that we can't really place our hopes in. Friends, if this life is the the main life, then why fight sin? Why endure suffering? Why serve humbly? Why be meek? Why be meek? Why be faithful? None of those things will get you plaudits in this life. We're seeing it play out in culture at the moment. And so if this life is the most important thing, then don't do those things, even though Jesus told you to. Now, I'm not saying that. Paul said that. As he concluded in verse 32, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow, We die, Paul goes kind of like all Viking, right? He goes all in on this, he says, friends, if this life is the most significant part of your life, if this reality is the most significant reality in your life, tear it up, try it all, seize the day, YOLO, go get it, break the rules, life is short, live it now, go for it. That is not the Christian view of what life is see the christian life contains this wonderful tension And here's this tension, it says, no, no, life here is short and it matters here and now in its embodied form regardless of its length and regardless of its societal significance, right? For the rich and the poor, for the healthy and the sick, for the young and for the old, for every tribe and tongue and nation, everyone matters. Why are we created in the image and likeness of God and we're given this time here on earth to steward and so our life here matters. And, listen, and... It matters the more because it will continue to exist for eternity in a state free of the restrictions and fallenness and sin and misery that beset so much of its existence here and now. This presents us, friends, with a very simple but truly unique view of life and its duration and the subsequent priorities that ought to follow from an understanding of that duration. The unique view that Christianity holds when it comes to this life we live um, here and now and the one to come can be summarized in this very simple statement. It's this, life is soberingly short (laughs) and life is also eternally long, and that sets some parameters and priorities for us as followers of Christ. Having an eye on both of these realities allows us to live the sorts of free, joyful, holy, helpful, kingdom-advancing lives that we are called to live as followers of Christ. You see, friends, the Bible tells us again and again that life is short. According to Psalm 103, it's quick and temporary as the grass of the fields. James 4 tells us it's like a vapor. You can see it for a moment and then it's gone. Our life experience tells us this as well. Uh, When I've sat with people who are near death, all of them think that life was too short. Even those who are ready to go, even those who have come to terms with it, my grandfather was one of them. He was ready to go and he still felt, Like it was too short, there was more that needed to be done. There was more love that needed to be given. There were more people who needed to be encouraged. It was too short. Life, friends, is very short. The scriptures warn us of this. And life is eternally long. It lasts forever. And so listen to this, this is big. Regardless of how long you live, regardless of how long you live, the vast majority of your life, by the factor of like millions, right? It's hard to do numbers with eternity, but the vast majority of your life will be spent in your resurrected state in the life to come. And it would be extremely wise to remember that perspective and therefore to invest in that life even more than we do in this one. It's been such a tremendous privilege for me to conduct a number of funerals and memorial services as part of my ministry. And they vary in tone depending on the age of the person who has died and, and depending on the stage of their faith to be sure. But for older people, you get lots of people commenting on how they had a long life. A good innings, as we would say, another cricketing reference for your edification and how that is a comfort for us, right? They had a long life. Didn't they live long and wasn't it full and didn't they see many things? When it is a young person, we speak in hushed tones about how short their life was and about what a tragedy therefore that must be. Now I get it, I get it. It's suffering, it's immense. It's difficult to grab hold of. But when we compare a long life and a short life with an eternal life, there is no discernible difference between the dots that the long life and the short life represent on the line of eternity. They will both look like the same mark when compared with what we have waiting for us. Friends, life is soberingly short. It should awaken us today to live it to the fullest. And life is eternally long. It should awaken us today to live for the things that will matter in eternity. Now there are a number of implications to this for the believer, so many. There's there's a book in here, right? I think I had 24 on my whiteboard at one point, but today I'll deal with just six for the sake of time and so that you don't fall asleep like those aforementioned in the scriptures, right? I have no desire to have a Uticus preaching moment where someone falls out of the window or the trees um, at the West congregation where the kids are currently climbing um, while their parents try to pretend that everything is going absolutely fine. So just six for today. The first one is when we remember that life is soberingly short and life is eternally long, the first one is we have an elevated view of all human life and of all human dignity. Now, we spoke about Christianity's unique view of humanity a few weeks ago, and so I don't wanna recover that ground, but this, friends, this must elevate our view of the incredible value of each and every person that we encounter because each person, each person, will be raised from the dead to an eternal destiny, either to an eternal destiny with Christ or to an eternal destiny without Christ, but everyone will be raised. This is why C.S. Lewis so remarkably said, he said, there are no ordinary people. (laughs) You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, Civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lewis went on to say that this shouldn't make us glum all the time, but it should make us really, really curious in the lives of all people, why? They're all eternal beings. They live in the here and now, but they will be resurrected from the dead one day. And as such, they deserve our attention and our focus and our love. Friends, this is why we love our neighbors, even when they are our enemies, especially when they are our enemies. This is why we protect the most vulnerable members of society across the board, from the unborn to the aged. This is why we strive for communities that are just, and safe, and that promote flourishing and opportunity. That's not wokeness, friends, that's an eternal understanding of the dignity of a human soul in embodied form in the here and now. This is why we dignify people through the loving and kind act of evangelism. You share the gospel not to earn brownie points in heaven, you share because you believe that heaven exists and you believe that the person you're sharing with is is dignified and so worthy of this great news because they too will be resurrected, either with Christ or separated from His mercy and kindness. Secondly, we have a sober-minded, but not fearful view of death. We're sober-minded in our view of death, but we are not fearful. You see, Christians of all people know that death is not actually our natural state. Death is a result of sin and curse. And so we of all people strive to protect life and of all people are able and willing to mourn with whoever it is who mourns. We see this so beautifully displayed in the incarnate life of Jesus Christ here on earth. What really deeply moves him? Well, often it's death because it's not part of our natural order. It's a result of sin and the curse. That's why Jesus weeps, at the grave of Lazarus, he knows resurrection is certain for Lazarus, he knows he can bring that resurrection forward. But he also knows the pain and the pang that death causes in the here and now. But friends, we of all people are not to be afraid of death for ourselves. Paul went on to say in Corinthians, he says, when this corruptible body, oh doesn't that describe us so well? This thing is kind of corruptible. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility. Oh, what a day that'll be. And this mortal body is clothed with immortality. Then the saying that he's written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Our friends, I know that the thought of death can be terrifying. I know that some of you are sick like scary level sick. I know just a few of your stories. As Christians, listen, in faith, we can and we must go before our Lord on your behalf and ask Him to bust into the here and now to miraculously heal your body. We must do that. We must and we do. And, and, not but, and, As Christians, we know that your ultimate hope isn't just the healing of your body now, but the resurrection of your body then. Take heart, take courage, don't fear. Some of you have lost someone and it's been so painful. I get it, I get it, death is painful. Paul encourages the Thessalonians who were mourning the loss of people they loved with these words, he said, in in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest or you will not grieve as the world grieves who have no Hope. So we grieve differently. Why? We have hope. What is the hope? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is tremendous, tremendous hope. I've been walking with a family who are beloved at the stone and who had what looks like a tragedy befall them over the last few months. They got the news while in utero that their little baby boy had a chromosome deformity that meant that if he was able to be carried to term, he would only possibly survive for a few days. And this marvelous family, full of trust, full of grace, believing the Lord's goodness, carried this beautiful boy to term and he, he survived nearly a week. And then passed away from this life and entered into the next. They don't mourn like the world. They are mourning, trust me. They're not in denial. But what I've seen in them is they do not mourn like the world, why? They have hope, why? They will see that boy again in His glorified, resurrected body. And the time that they get to spend with Him will be exponentially more than any of the time they feel that they lost with Him here. This is not pie in the sky. This is not cruel or abstract. This is the very real work of the resurrection encouraging mortal souls in the here and now. Friends, if you've lost someone, if they're a believer, they're with Christ. My goodness. Don't mourn like the world, mourn but not like the world. If you've lost someone you don't know if they're a believer, here's all I can say, you can entrust them to the mercy of God. He's more merciful and kind than any of us. Third one, we embrace the freedom that comes from viewing this life as an act of stewardship. So much energy in this life is spent in pursuit of the myth that we can have a little more and that at some point a little more will equal enough. If I just had more time, if I just had more talent, if I just had more treasure, just a little more and it's mirage chasing and it's exhausting and it's why so many of us are exasperated. But stop, when I actually consider in faith, do this, when I actually consider the heavenly treasure that is coming for me, then I am free in this world to be rich in generosity, even if it means being poor in the standards of this world. But I actually have to stop and think about it. When I consider, friends, oh my goodness, the heavenly body that is coming, then I am free from so much of the self-loathing that results from constant comparison and the never ending wish that God had made me just a little bit different from how he did. Friends, I spent most of my life hating the body that God has put me in. I still give in to this temptation now and again. If I had a theme song as a young man, it would have been the the smash 1995 hit by Skilo, which said, I wish I was a little bit taller, I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good, I would call her. Don't Google the rest of those lyrics, but but that was kind of my state, right? This continual angst. I wish I was other than what I am. But when I think that God has a perfectly designed resurrection body that will be fully me and yet not corrupted by sin in the life to come, then I'm free to just steward whatever He has entrusted me with in this life when I consider the eternity of God's presence that is coming, then I can stop trying to squeeze every single drop out of every single experience that this life has to offer. And I can actually enjoy rest and presence and limitation and creatureliness. And I can be present with other immortal souls without rushing off to the next distraction. Imagine living with the freedom of Paul who says in Philippians one, that for him to live is Christ, to die is gain. He really wants to go home to be with Jesus, but he also wants to steward the time, talent, and treasure that God gave him. And so he sticks around and he sticks to it for as long as God needs him. What freedom to live that way. Fourth one, we have urgency and we have patience in the fight against sin. Remember where Paul said that if the resurrection isn't a reality, then we should all just tear it up. Well, he has the opposite implication because the resurrection is real. He says in verse 34, come to your senses and stop sinning, <laughs> right? Because the resurrection is real. Don't be ignorant about God. Don't be ignorant about eternity. Come to your senses and stop sinning. You see the logic of this world is life is short, go for it all. The, gospel of the, the logic of the gospel is life is short, but the next one is long. So fight temptations knowing that you won't have to fight them Forever. The world says, YOLO, you only live once. Christianity says, YOLF, you also live forever, right? It's not as catchy, it's probably not gonna become a t-shirt trend, but you also live forever. Remember that in your fight against sin. Friends, this brings urgency. It means it's important, put that sin to death today. But it also brings patience because you know, hey, how long am I gonna have to endure this temptation? Not long, friend. Not long, persevere. Fifth one, we can faithfully endure the worst. The suffering that happens in this world, we can faithfully endure it. In 2 Corinthians 4, we have this beautiful outline of how believers can endure suffering. Look at what it says. It says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Why and how? Well, verse 17 tells us, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, What is unseen is eternal. You see how perspective actually changes endurance? It's amazing. Some of you are going through incredibly difficult suffering. Keep going. A glorious future awaits with the saints who persevere. It helps us to endure. I love Revelations 14. Where it says, blessed are those, blessed are the dead who die in Christ from now on. Why? They will have rest from their labor and an eternal reward follows them forevermore. Friends, it's coming. It's coming. Persevere, last one. Not only can we faithfully endure, we can actually faithfully enjoy. We can enjoy the best of this life as well. The accusation against this sort of thinking is that it can be pie in the sky when you die that removes you from the reality of this life and renders you ineffective in society. I actually think when you do it right, it does the opposite. It loosens our grip on this life a little and allows us to enjoy all that has been placed in our hands for what they are to give ourselves um, to bringing about the best we can while we are here, but not experiencing the constant tumult of trying to establish heaven on earth, which is exhausting. This isn't putting our heads in the sand and denying the realities of this world and this life. This is us lifting our heads out of the sand and opening our eyes to the reality of how things really are. This brings a joy and an ability to enjoy things as they are, knowing that eternal reward awaits us. Look at how Paul summarized his resurrection argument back in 1 Corinthians 15, and then I'm done. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Friends, life is short, it's so short. There's no guarantee of tomorrow, there's no guarantee of this afternoon. Live for Christ. Believes the gospel, share the gospel, participate in the advance of the eternal kingdom with all you can, endure, persevere, press on, be steadfast. The more you live in this life for an eternal reality, the more peculiar you will appear, do it anyway. And friends, life is eternal. Some of us will be raised to an eternal life of the presence and love of Christ. Some will be raised to an eternity separated from His goodness and mercy. Trust Christ today. Your life is gonna be way longer than you think. Let me close with this, I know I'm out of time. One day, when my name is called, and I shuffle off this mortal coil, at my memorial service, if any people would attend such a thing, I don't presume that that would happen, I want a song to be played. It's a song by a San Diego band called Switchfoot, right? And it's called, Where I Belong. And the lyrics, it, they, they bring me to tears just about every time I hear the song. It's got this great line. It says, I'm not sentimental. This skin and bones is a rental. <laughs> and no one makes it out alive. But at the end of the song, it has this line. It says, on the final day I die, I wanna hold my head up high. I wanna tell you that I tried to live it like a song. And when I reach the other side, I wanna look him in the eye and know that I've arrived in a world where I belong. Friends, it's short and it's long. Live wisely. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray today that you give us sobriety and hope and joy and optimism. But I pray that you bring us an urgency, Father, an urgency to fight sin, an urgency to share your gospel, an urgency to do loving acts that help to advance your kingdom and declare your goodness to to the spheres of influence that you give us. Help us to be good stewards. We steward this life well, so that on that final day when we die, we get to look you in the eye and know that we've arrived in a world where we finally Belong. We love you, Jesus. We cannot wait for that day. In the meanwhile, make us faithful.